This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 65 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today again is Colin Thubron. We're talking about his most recent book, The Amur River, Between Russia and China, which will be published on September 21st, 2021. Today, we talk about the Amur River, of course, and its role in Sino-Russian relations, Colin's 1,000-mile journey along the river's various incarnations across Mongolia, Russia, and China, And we also speak about aging, a major theme of the book, and its impact on his approach to travel and writing. Lots of inspiration here, especially for those who equate travel writing and youthful adventure. Anyway, we're going straight into the interview today. So while the show is free, it isn't cheap. Please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com slash support. As ever, thanks for listening. So now, here is Colin Thubron. Colin, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, back in the saddle, as they say, not just uh, to Russia, but also to China. This time, you're following the Amur River from beginning to end in your new book, The Amur River Between Russia and China. Uh, a complicated river to write about because it flows through several countries, uh, to say nothing about the the, the uh, imprecise origins of, of the river. Can you give us a, a sense of where this river is geographically and uh, where it runs through? Yes. I mean, the strange thing is that this is the 10th longest river in the world, um, but it's so little known in the West. It starts in the mountains of northeast Mongolia, and then it flows into Siberia. And for over a thousand miles, it's the border between Russia and China. Finally, it leaves that border and goes north for another 600 miles or so into the Pacific. So it's in a, if you look at the eastern half of Asia, it lies in a, in a great curve, uh, in a great sort of S-bend, really, mm. um, basically between Siberia and Russia and China. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that it's the 10th longest river, and some dispute that. They say it's uh, the 8th longest river, or you know, the number changes. And I, I suspect this is because uh, of, of the, the way in which the river is kind of charted. The, indeed, the name of the river changes from its origins in Mongolia. It changes three or four uh, times, depending on how you count. Um, can you give us a sense of these uh, uh, of these uh, name changes, like from, from Mongolia, the Anon River, and then finally into the Amur? Yes. I mean, the Mongolian call it simply the Anon. They call it the Holy Mother Anon and regard it as female. Um, the Russians, uh, to the Russians, the Amur um, is the little father Amur. Um, it has a change of gender. Um, <laughs> before then, it, it's the Shilka, um, which is a, a small stretch of the river. And then in the long stretch between Russia and China, um, it uh, becomes on the Chinese side, the Heilongjiang, which means the Black Dragon River, basically. 
and then as it flows north again, of course, it's the pure amour. So um, as regards its length, yes, it's endlessly disputed. Um, I suppose it depends where people conceive this, the source of the river really is, um, and sometimes the way rivers meander about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it's the subject of quite such dispute, but normally it's thought of, I think, as the 10th longest. Mm-hmm. It's interesting the the um, the, the name changing of, of, of this river, um, but it seems to me that you know, from reading your book, uh, it seems to me that the the name changing is you know part like a byproduct of the river's complicated history as being kind of disputed territory, but also forming you know the border in some parts between you know these two giant countries, Russia and China. Um, where do we get where where do we begin to see the complicated history or the disputes of this river um historically uh well we see it really um uh from the late uh, uh, late 17th century you know, the russians have at incredible speed uh, crossed over 3000 miles of siberia um and uh, sort of slaughtering or suborning uh, the native peoples along their way. Mm. And so um, it, the first thing that hits them is meeting China, and they have no idea about the Chinese empire, nor do the Chinese have any idea about Russia. Um, so uh, the, the trouble, if you like, begins then around about the 1680s um, when there's this conflict under the Treaty of Nerchinsk, um, in 1689 is a key moment, particularly to the Chinese, because the two powers met in, in apparent harmony. But um, in exchange for Russian commercial concessions, um, the Chinese established that their rule lay far north um, of the present um, border, far north of the Amur River. In fact, um, it, it embraced the entire basin the Amur River, and this was what the Russians conceded, and it wasn't changed until the Russians simply, um, in the time of the Chinese weakness, the dynasty really in China was in terminal decline, the Russians took it back. Um, A belligerent, Count Moraviev, went down with a flotilla of armored barges, and the the Chinese could do nothing about it. They watched helplessly. And at the Treaty of Aigun in 1858, uh, Russia took all, all the lands north of the Amur that it presently holds, which still to the Chinese, they haven't quite conceded that this was just. Um, the border has been officially recognized along the river, but the Chinese have never withdrawn their definition of that treaty as unequal, mm-hmm. the way they describe it. Mm-hmm. And the Russians... So, so it, Sorry? Sorry. No, so, um, you know, the, in times of, of anger or disruption, like the Cultural Revolution, um, a sort of sleeping anger has emerged on the Chinese side in which they, they are claiming that land back. Mm-hmm. And when, when the Russians retook the, that, the, the land, um, they did so under the premise that, you know, the old treaty was abandoned because there's a new regime in, in China. Yes, well, they. Uh, um, I, I think they simply um, thought that there were all sorts of reasons. They even imagined that the 
Jesuit priests who had aided the Chinese in, a, in <laughs> setting the treaty were perfidious, or the geography was wrong, or anything. Um, and so it was. Uh, it, they they simply said, "This this is ours," mm-hmm. um, and took it back. Yeah, in, in your in your book, uh, you kind of weave in and out of uh, the border. You speak with Russians, you speak with Chinese, Mongolians. Um, and, and one of the things that struck me was, um, you know, you, you go, you, you travel through this territory uh, where the Chinese and the Russians are holding joint military exercises. So there's a kind of, I, I, I don't know, um, there's, there's an idea of harmony here between the two nations politically, yet as you travel and you speak with the Chinese and you speak with the Russians, there seems to be this uh, deep suspicion, cultural suspicion of, 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 of one another. Um, do you think that this is also a byproduct of, of the politics of the river or is there something kind of more fundamental going uh, I, on? Um, I think it's where the two peoples meet. It's the only place geographically where Russians and Chinese come up close to one another and they are very, very different culturally. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese tend to think of the Russians as sort of boorish and um and rather uncouth in general and the 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 um Russians think of the Chinese as much too uh, well, uh, they, they can't be trusted, they often said. It's always in the market, they say they can't be trusted and they have cold hearts, the Russians say. <laughs> so you get a, a sort of a, a, a great cultural divide there. Um, and uh, it, it has the... What happened to me was that I got caught. I was in a Buddhist monastery in Siberia and suddenly um, I realized with the smoke puffing around me and armored vehicles passing all around us. I was in the middle, quite inadvertently, of one of the largest military exercises that had taken place for 40 years. There are 300,000 Russians and Chinese on, on military exercise together. And I was lucky to escape it only with the help of a friendly monk uh, did I escape it undetected. But that was a sort of official, you might say almost a political act um, that Russia and China are together. And um, it had very little to do with the feelings of the people along the way. Almost universally, I found the Russians distrust the Chinese. If you look at the imbalance in numbers of the Chinese to the south of the river, which is about um, in the nearest provinces, 110 million, and just 2 million Russians in the provinces along the river, one can understand how the Russians begin or have felt very uneasy. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, a an area that that you know quite well. You've traveled to Russia, and Siberia, and China before, and you've you've written around, uh, you've written about these books. Um, uh, you've you've written about these countries many times in your your previous previous books. Um, and one of the, you know one of the conventions or or tropes uh, we sometimes see in in the travel book is the the why I went section, you know, that, that account of establishing the stakes or the motivations for the trip. Um, and I, I don't seem to recall reading this in, in your new book. Um, so I was wondering if you could, if you could, uh, unpack that, like what, what is drawing you back to return to Siberia, to Russia and to China, um, this time to travel the length of the river? Um, well, 
I suppose most of my working life has been concerned in some way with Russia and China. Mm -hmm. And it seemed almost natural to have a look at this river, which is where both these great ex-communist giants uh, find their limit and uh, potentially their opposition. It seemed a very natural choice. Um, maybe at my age, I'm now 82, um, it seems to people as if this is my last book, so I'm taking these two empires to their last extent. Um, I don't know about that. But um, uh, it, it, I, I didn't question it when the feeling came mm -hmm. up. And I suppose my motives for ever choosing these difficult parts of the world to write about are very mixed. Um, but I think to some extent I could say that um, these are countries that I fear, I was brought up to fear them. Um, and uh, I wanted to put a human map on, on lands that uh, certainly in my childhood um, I thought were the enemy. Um, and we still, we continue to think that. And I like to, if I can, uh, humanize them. Mm -hmm. Maybe I misheard you. Did, you. did you just say that this is your final book? No. Okay. Um, some people may think it is okay. maybe at my age. Um, and it was a very rough journey. Yeah. Um, if I'd known how tough it was going to be, I'm not sure I would have undertaken it so blithely. But um, no, I hope it's not my final book. Okay. But uh, who's to know? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the question here um, about aging. Is, because, you know, I imagine that many people associate travel writing the travel book with um youthful adventure you know like you know yeah. some some classic titles are just that patrick lee firmer's books uh laurie lee's i mean these are older men writing about their youth um but your book and, and other recent books you know Theroux's on the plane of stakes comes to mind you know confront yes. the topic of aging um and i'm yeah. glad for these books not just for the sake of diversity, but to help dispel the stereotypes society holds about about aging. Um, and, and indeed, this is a theme throughout your book. Uh, you know, you, you were thrown from a horse a few times. You cracked your ribs, uh, broke your ankle. You were what? Were, you were eighty when you're you're setting off on your adventure. Yes, yeah, nine. Yes. <laughs> so uh, having having done this you know, most of your life traveling and, and writing about your, your travels. Just curious, in the context of aging, um, has your approach to traveling changed over the years? Oh, not consciously. Um, it's the same sort of approach. I tend to um, do a lot of research, always I always have before. Um, the, the writing is very hard and takes a long time. The traveling is usually as close to the ground as I can. You know, in countries where I originally started writing, like uh, Cyprus and Lebanon, I walked everywhere. I like it if I can to um, mix in uh, with ordinary people, if possible, rather than to go from one contact to another. Um, so I think, I think my method, such as it is, uh, just comes naturally to me. I haven't sort of particularly thought about it. And it hasn't changed a great deal. I've had to learn languages. That's, I think, the the better thing is that when I was very young, I'm ashamed to say I wrote two books on the Arab world and never learned Arabic. Um, now, as I've been writing on Russia and China, 
I've struggled to acquire both those languages very feebly, but um, uh, enough usually to converse and understand in ordinary conversation. So, um, yes, I think uh, I, I think that the that age um, must have slowed me up in certain ways, but I, I, I'm not conscious of it. <laughs> I always feel um, that if I'm passionate enough about the subject, then I, <laughs> the spirit drags the flesh along with it somehow. Right. Well, we wouldn't know anything about that had you not mentioned it in the book. I mean, the Amur River, you, you walked th- over a thousand miles, or not just walk, but, you know, boat, car, uh, horseback, uh, so we wouldn't we wouldn't <laughs> know that this is an eighty year old uh, a man um, going on this adventure. But you you'd mentioned here that uh, writing was hard and uh, takes a long time. And I I vaguely remember I think last year we had a conversation uh, that you mentioned that you were a slow writer. And I was wondering if um, you could unpack that a little bit, like. When you say you're a slow writer, writing is hard or take a, takes a long time, what does that process look like for you? Um, it, it's a sort of all-day process. I mean, many writers just write in the morning and then mm-hmm. feel that that's enough. I tend to sort of warm up in the morning. I've just about corrected what I did the day before. And I need the afternoon and sometimes even late into the evening. I used to need and still do do perhaps 12 hours uh, writing, wow. which is long, um, and not much gets done in terms of numbers of words. If there are writers listening to this, they'll think it's pretty pathetic. I mean, I'm lucky to get a couple of hundred words done a day, even with those sort of hours. Um, I don't know why I take so long. Um, I write from notebooks, which I've taken during the journeys, and um, uh, so I have the data there, the detail. But to get it right, um, to get the words as economical as I can and and as um, accurate, then it takes all this time. And it's never got any faster. Mm. I don't think it's got any slower either. But I think one thing does happen that um, with age, that maybe your imagination, you know, the sort of imaginative vitality diminishes a little bit. But your critical faculties don't, at least I don't think mine have. So um, possibly I'm harsher on my writing than I used to be. And um, I I don't think in my case that matters because I tend to overwrite. And so the fact of slowly becoming more um, more critical and less sort of violently imaginative perhaps is not too bad a thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Two, uh, a couple hundred words a day. In the writing community, some people s- speak about writing first drafts, you know, the idea being yeah. <laughs> they just kind of like dump as many words as they can onto the page or onto the software and, you know, do must, m- much of the cleaning up work well after the fact. But it seems that yeah. you take a more measured approach to writing. And do you, do you do a lot of cleanup work? after the fact, or do you try to take care of that as you're marching along? Uh, uh, you mean we're in the writing? That's I, right, that's um, right. Then, yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm a bad rewriter. I mean, not uh, just sentence by sentence. Um, there always seems to be something wrong with it. <laughs> so, um, no, I do a lot of cleaning up. Um, the, 
the day after is the big clean-up day, um, because often I feel I'm a great genius at night, and I write <laughs> stuff down, and in the morning I go in and wonder who went off with that good copy that I wrote the day before, so as if somebody sneaked in and took it away and left this junk here. So I have to get at work um, on, on the writing again. And then um, I like to leave a cooling-off period, um, perhaps some, uh, several months even, mm-hmm. and then look back at what I've written from cold. And this is familiar to many writers, I think. You uh, need to separate yourself from it a bit and read it from, from cold. And then you have a, a more distance critical eye on it, which in my case has been good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that perspective, I think, is, is uh, helpful. Um, back on the, the topic of aging real quick, and, and final question here. Um, I think the pandemic has forced us all to kind of acknowledge our own, you know, vulnerability and mortality. And um, I think you'd mentioned that you are working on this new book, uh, The Amber River, during the during the pandemic. Um, and you said that you traveled before the the pandemic, the pandemic, of course, but you were working on some of this during the pandemic. And like for me, the pandemic has like triggered a sense of urgency in life and, you know, and in creative work, you know, because who knows when, when this will all end. But I was wondering if, you know, the pandemic has changed the way that, you know, you, you work and, and more, more broadly, um, you know, changed the way that you thought about, about life and living? Well, I think it hasn't changed the way I work because I was uh, in the last sort of third of the book when the pandemic struck here in London. And I was guiltily quite grateful for the peace mm-hmm. that descended, that nobody wanted to see me <laughs> and that I could just get on with the work. So a little shamefully, um, I wasn't un- unhappy to be closed away with COVID. Um, My wife, too, who's an author. And so um, from that perspective of the actual writing, I don't think COVID has changed anything. As regards one's feeling about the future, um, I think it, what, what I think did affect it was that I suspect that even after being vaccinated twice, I had a mild dose of COVID. I had all the symptoms, the great cough, you know, mm-hmm. and the lethargy. And I think that gave me a foretaste of old age. It's ridiculous to say that I'm 82. And to most people, I'm already very old. Um, but I've never felt so. I've always felt that I was uh, young or, or no particular age at all. But suddenly with this lethargy and aching, um, I felt, yes, this is old age. This is what it means to be old. I've since more or less recovered from that particular um, uh, uh, sort of feeling of of misery, and I feel okay now, but I haven't forgotten what it is to to become um, so incapacitated, really, um, that you couldn't work, and you even find it quite hard to get about. So that came as a sort of warning to me, so that when I look at whatever book I write in the future, maybe with a greater sense of gratitude if I should ever finish it, um, a feeling, yes, that um, one's days are numbered. Um, It's ridiculous to have not felt that before. But um, getting, as I think I did, a mild case of COVID was enough to remind me 
of, of mortality. Every every strong man I talk to, uh, like yourself, Colin, got knocked in the ass by <laughs> by the uh, by the vaccine. Um, so I think that's not a function of age, but just a function of the the vaccine itself. But it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Colin. Uh, the Amur River is available, I think, September twenty first. Very nice talking to you, Jeremy. Thank you again. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support. 